Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 23, and we're recording on Thursday, October 10th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Special Thursday night recording. Mm-hmm. Book Riot After Dark. Book Riot After Dark, because there's big news today. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but we got some, we got other big news. Well, big news for us. Yeah, we think it's cool. We like it. We did a t-shirt. Book Riot's two years old. We talked about it last week a little bit. Mm-hmm. We did some stats. But we thought it'd be fun to do a little t-shirt um, to commemorate the event. And so... Uh, there's this platform called Teespring, and you can go check it out, teespring.com slash bookwrite, T-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G. And you can see, and if you want to, if you want to it's not, it doesn't have Bookwrite on it, but it has a very Bookwrite vibe to it. Should we, cheat, should we just tease them like that, or we should tell them what it is? Oh, we should tell the people what this okay, shirt Okay, you, you go from here, you go from you here. You know, there are a lot of bookish t-shirts that you right. could wear, but Bookwrite rolls a little bit differently. Uh, so our shirts say Read Harder mm-hmm. uh, in big gold letters. Uh, they're sort of decayed looking like our Bookwrite logo. It's a cool gray shirt. We've got a couple different styles you can choose from. Uh, some v-necks and some ladies fit if you're looking for something that's a little more form-fitting. Uh, I think they're pretty rad. Yeah, I think so too. We're, we, we like them. And I got one. Uh, I bought one. I'm going to wear it Yep, almost every day. Uh, I have to wash it probably every third or fourth day. Um, but go check them out. They're 20 bucks and they're going to be, let's see, when does it close? Let's see. I'm trying to think. It of closes people... on October 14th. The 14th. So this show is going to come out tomorrow. So you have a couple days after the show's come out, this show has come out to, uh, still be able to get them, but they won't be available after the campaign is over. That's the deal. Yeah. It's Do a, a cool limited thing. run. Kind of cool. We're not going to have them, but if you want one, go get one. We'd love Te- to see you. Yep, teespring.com slash book riot. If you get one when it comes, if you'll you know snap a photo of yourself. I was going to say, maybe we should have people take a picture Send it of to them us, wearing it, doing it, doing yeah, cool things or reading or whatever. Noodling around on some sort of show us your t-shirt giveaway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So teespring.com slash book riot. Read harder, people. Read harder. Okay, let's do our first sponsor. Savudu Universe is back. It's the online destination for science fiction and fantasy fans. Um, but the new thing they're they're wanting to tell you about this time is called Savudu Universe, and it is basically a community of bloggers covering the universe of sci-fi, fantasy, and all the pop culture that surrounds it. So literature, film, games, the whole shoot and match, TV. So you can join the community if you're a blogger and want to write stuff. Connect with other like-minded contributors. They're all diverse, all talking about sci-fi and fantasy. You can enter contests. You can participate in other kinds of games and community community events. Um, and you can do it using it to promote your blog, your whatever hobby it is that you want. Um, your content can burble up to the top and have a whole bunch of other people take a look at it. So we want to reach new readers and to increase the discovery of science, fact- science fiction and fantasy stuff all over the Internet. So you can go to Savudu. Uh, excuse me, universe.savudu.com. 
Um, and you can go check it out, see if it looks like something you might be interested in. If you just want to read about sci-fi and fantasy stuff, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff there as well. But if you want to write, there's a chance to um, participate in the community there. So you can get badges that talk about the stuff you've written about. Um, and, you know, you get accepted. And you can be among the most popular posts or an editor's pick and uh, participate in the community that way. So check out universe.savudu.com if you're interested in, in writing for them that's one thing but also savudu.com if you're interested in science fiction and fantasy uh, to read about so thanks so much for sponsoring the show this week go check them out and savudu is s-u-v-u-d-u oh that's right i should spell that that's that's non-obvious so the big news today this morning I didn't see this one coming well they talked so the nobel prize in literature this morning was awarded to alice monroe Mm-hmm. The great, the eminent, the indefatigable uh, Canadian short story writer, uh, who I'm a big fan of. You had your first Monroe experience this year. It's I, nice timing. I did, yeah, back uh, early this year, January or February, when her latest, and now we know her last collection of short stories, Dear Life, was up for the Morning News Tournament of Books. Yeah. Uh, so I started at the end with her, but it was a really beautiful collection, and definitely obvious from from what's in those pages why she is so beloved and so respected yeah um so very cool to see very alice cool. monroe um even though the, like every year the smart money is on haruki murakami it's gonna happen it's gonna happen Someday. for him this year uh there's not a lot more to say I, what's interesting I, i'm glad i mean the more people that read her the better um she tends to write about not I guess what I was surprised about is the 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 Nobel of late has been more political, I mm-hmm. guess, in a way. And there's an argument to me that she is political because she does write about women's lives in small town Canada, which everything's political and that is too. But it's not broadly political um, in a way that some of the more recent picks have been. She she writes quiet, beautiful, um, arresting short stories about people's interior lives. But the the canvases are small, um, the the palette is muted. But what she does, she does with incredible efficiency and grace. Um, but it just doesn't feel to me like it's been a part of the the most recent trend. Not, I'm I'm not saying she doesn't deserve it. That's not don't uh, don't hear that. If that's what you're hearing, you are wrong. <laughs> um, it's just n- not of a piece of the trend I've sort of been expecting. Like Murakami's like this big canvas, a lot of issues, really complicated, these big, thick, dense novels. Monroe's written 14 short story collections and that nary a novel among them, um, which is unusual. So that's, I don't know if that's and the Nobel committee is making a statement about short stories there either. But um, I thought it was a great pick, a surprise pick. Um, clearly everyone we follow on the internet likes it because they all have MFAs and this is, you know, Monroe is like <laughs> the, the, the reigning goddess of uh, MFA short story writers. Yeah. But uh, what do you think about it? I, Anything? You know, I think un- it's remarkable for a couple of reasons. First, because it's incredibly difficult to build a career writing short stories, mm-hmm. period. To, you know, most of the time or, or, or a good chunk of the percentage of short story collections that come out are by novelists that we already know. Um, right. I know, I, I know of several novelists who had a short story collection and a novel finished when they got their publisher and the publisher was like, you know, the collection is really great, but you can't just go out into the world with a short story right. collection yeah, first. Yeah, it's yeah. really difficult to build a career that way and to have built a career with 14 collections. There's so uh, and, many. I and mean, nobody has a bad thing to say about Alice Monroe nope. 
and nope. her work ever. Nope. Uh, she just has this sort of spotless career, and she's become uh, famous worldwide as this writer of short stories um, and, you know, never tried or never felt the need, I guess, to yep. do a novel just to prove that she could do a novel. She really understands the art of short stories and what short stories do. And her writing feels so effortless. That was the thing that I was really struck by. And, um, and it felt to me kind of similar to the way that reading James Salter feels mm. like the sentences are perfect mm -hmm. and they're striking and they're very affecting, but they're not affected. And, um, and that yeah. is, that's unusual. Right. Um, and that to me is the sign of a master. Um, it, it is the hardest thing in the world to write something that seems effortless, yeah. effortlessly perfect. Yeah. Um, and she even, um, I saw there's of course today on Twitter, especially everyone who's ever written anything about Alice Monroe is including us to be mm -hmm. frank. Um, uh, someone said, uh, or, uh, an interview, I think it was with the Paris Review or something, she said, I both do and do not find writing difficult, which is a little unusual what you mm. hear from writers, right? Mm -hmm. Usually writers say, you know, it's hard even when it's fun, it's still really hard. So that that struck me a little bit as you don't hear writers saying very often that it's easy. Um, and she's not saying it's completely easy, but uh, that sometimes she finds it easy. When I was reading Dear Life for the Term of Books, I, I got on a little jag of tweeting kind of Alice Monroe jokes. Oh, right. Um, I remember that was a good night. Yeah, and it wasn't, I wasn't making fun of her. I was just sort of kind of doing like a Chuck it, Norris it was, thing, but yeah, of Alice Monroe. Like, it was like Chuck Norris jokes meet the most interesting man in the universe yeah, jokes. Yeah, so I think the only one I remember now is that I said uh, one time Alice Monroe got lost in the jungle, but she wrote a sentence and cut herself out of the jungle with a sentence. Because like <laughs> she writes these, you know, really beautiful, perfect, razor sharp sentences. And that's sort of how I feel about it. So um, my favorite collection is from 1998, uh, The Love of a Good Woman, though I must say it could just because that's the first one I read. Hmm. Um, though 2004's Runaway, I like a great deal. There is a, there is a, I don't think there's an omnibus collection yet, but I believe there is a, a selected um, volume of Alice Monroe's short story. So that's a good place to start. But um, any of them are, uh, you know, they're all, pretty good. I actually wouldn't start with the one you started with, because um, it does feel more like a coda. Um, I was looking around today, and apparently one of her more recent collections is called, let me get this straight, Hateship, Friendship, friendship Courtship, Loveship, Loveship marriage. marriage, right. Another short story. They're all short. I don't know why I keep saying that. They're all short stories. <laughs> uh, it's actually been made into a movie, um, and it's starring Kristen Wiig, Huh. Um, and it it premiered at Toronto Film Festival in September, so it's going to be playing art houses. That's interesting. Over the over the um, fall, so that might be a nice little one two punch because yeah. that's a I don't know that's a great they're all great that that's a, that's also a very good one, mm -hmm. um, and that would be a kind of a nice one to read too. Then you could go see the movie yeah. or follow that as it comes out. So I was reading today that Vintage, which is um, Alice Monroe's publisher here in the U.S., it's a division of Random House has released a notice that they were going back for a reprinting of her 14 oh, yeah, collections. Oh, yeah, I saw you tweet about this today. Totaling yeah, yeah. 100,000 new copies of the book. And um, that seemed like a lot to you from of, what of you the were books. saying. It does. It seems like a lot. Well, remember back in the spring when the National yeah. Book Award was announced mm -hmm. and then there was news a couple of weeks later that, like, I can't even, I'm terrible. I can't even remember who won the National Book Award for fiction oh, this wasn't year. Wasn't it the Pulitzer, though? Oh, maybe it was. Yeah, it was Adam Johnson for the Orphan Masters. Okay, well, I'm I remember screwing this one up all the no, way No, 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 yeah. I, I'm got you. I'm, uh, I'm catching you. Okay, as you yeah. Fall. So Adam Johnson won 
for the Orphan Master Son, yeah. which is a novel about Korea. Uh, ostensibly very good book. I haven't mm -hmm. read it, but people loved it. I haven't it. read and, it either. Uh, it's sort of like mythology slash lore slash a core belief of publishing mm -hmm. that winning a prize is great for a writer's career, um, not only for the recognition of your craft, but because of sales. Yeah. Uh, but Adam Johnson really did not sell many copies. Yeah, of the and the Orphan weeks Master after, there was Sun. like 3,000 copies. Yeah, or, I mean, so that might even be on the high I'm, side. I would love it if a publisher got a boost oh, yeah. to, the, to the tune of 100,000 copies of an author's books. Um, well, I short think, stories I are think, a hard sell. Yeah, uh, I tend to agree with you. Let, let me play <laughs> the other side just for a second. Uh, maybe... Maybe she has some extant name recognition. We're seeing this on the site and on Twitter today, too. People are like, oh, yeah, I should really read her. So I wonder if um, there's some latent Maybe, knowledge to tap I mean, into. I would really love to see the numbers of like what Toni Morrison's novels did after she won the yeah. Nobel in 1993. That would be an interesting comparison. Yeah, um, that would be interesting. The other thing I was going to say is um, the the Pulitzer is for one work and a Nobel is for a body of work. So I wonder if see, people will go and get a couple. Maybe. Because also Adam Johnson didn't have another book, right? There wasn't right, another right. one. Right, that was a debut novel. And so you're going to go into Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore or online and you're going to look for Alison Rowe or see the display and there's going to be 14 attractive titles there all laid out for you. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, and so you said the magic word online there, and that's a piece of this yeah. that complicates it as well. Uh, I looked and mm. eBooks are available of most of Monroe's collections online and you don't have to wait for those. You don't mm -hmm. have to wait. You know, it was news to bookstores this morning that Alice Monroe had won. And so it, in every bookstore in the country, people were trying to frantically order in Alice yeah. Monroe books to carry in their inventory. And so mm -hmm. unless they happen to have a few copies of her best ones or her latest one on the shelves anyone who wanted them was going to have to wait and uh, yeah. you can you can get those ebooks and i thought you know if i if right now the thing that i wanted to do is read alice monroe then the thing that i would do is yeah. Im impulse buy one or two of the ebooks they're cheaper than the paperbacks first mm -hmm. of all so it's, uh, and i can have them immediately there's no delay there so that's it i i wonder if bookstores are adjusting for the fact that readers do that now that we can impulse buy these ebooks uh, when a big announcement comes out um and i wonder if the publishers accounted for that in yeah. that number Though i if hope you, if they you think about it if you think about 000. it if it's a hundred thousand total that's only like seven thousand per collection so it's not that many per title, right? Is right. that what it is? It's 100,000 total? It's hard when we do math, Jeff. I know. But I'm saying it's 100,000 for all 14 right, right. short it's stories. It's only 7,000 right, right, right. per. So that's not that many when you think about it that way. I don't, I don't know. It would be interesting to see if um, – you, you know what we'll be able to tell? If we go into Barnes & Noble in February and there's a bunch of remaindered uh, – mm -hmm. uh, But maybe they'll just sit on the shelf, you know? Maybe they're just going to, you know, these are the editions that are going to be available for the next two or three years. And as people pick them up over time and um, there'll be another, you know, she's now, I mean, the one thing the Nobel does for sure is that your name goes up there right. uh, on, on the Mount Rushmore of, well, I mean, there's more faces than that, but you know, it's just, it's now part where Pulitzer winners can fade away, you know, <laughs> it's Mount Readmore, Mount Readmore and, uh, you know, and, and national book, book uh, award winners can fade away. Um, like you look at the, if you look at the historical list of winners, there's gonna be some names you're like, what? Mm -hmm. Who is that? But ain't so 
um, with the Nobel, especially if it's in a language that you are a native speaker of, they become, uh, if they aren't already a uh, household name. So interesting stuff there. Um, the rare time in the last few years where it hasn't been kind of a question mark uh, announcement for those of us who don't, who, who are native English speakers. Um, so that's, uh, that's a bit, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are going to check her out. And she's the first Canadian woman to win this. Yeah, first Canadian yeah. at all, right? First Canadian at all to win the Nobel yeah. in Literature. And the first, I think the first, uh, the the first writer in English since Tony, right? Yes. The the so that's been that was nineteen ninety three. Yeah, so twenty years. Wow. Um, so that's maybe maybe there's some pent up demand for a an English Nobel laureate. Mm-hmm. Maybe that. I wonder if. Uh... If if David Gilmore is sitting in his office at oh, the University of Toronto, you know crying what? he's about not even this. a pimple on the rear end of Alice Munro. It's not even <laughs> not worth talking even. about he, that guy. He's not. Uh, the internet did delight today in, yeah. in jokes at David Gilmore's expense <clears throat> as they celebrated Alice Munro. So it was worth mentioning. And if you heard last week's show, you heard us explain uh, that Gilmore is a professor who stated in a recent interview that he's just not interested in teaching books written uh, by women. But yep. I would like for David Gilmore to show me his Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's going to be a Ain't gonna gonna be, it's going to be a tough reveal. Um, okay, I, anything else on that? No, that's it. I th- we're we're going to be seeing more stories in the next week. We'll probably have some follow up about this. Yeah, and uh, we'll uh, drop a link into the the show notes for this as well. We um, from our book start here, which oh, tells yeah. you how to read your way into authors that you've wanted to try but you haven't known where to start. We have a great chapter on Alice Munro that gives you a three story sequence, uh, mm-hmm. one story from one story each from three different collections of hers, uh, with an explanation of why those are important stories in her body of work. Uh, to help you get started and to, to know uh, if you're going to like her or not. So you can go further in her, uh, in her work. This would have been a prime day. And I know this is something, I think this is something you've talked about maybe on the book rager show of something mm-hmm. you want, which is um, the ability to buy individual short stories yes. out of collections. I want that so much. This would be the day. This would have been the ultimate day for that. Um, Cause then people could have, you know, well, this as, as Ben Dolnick, who wrote the chapter for us on Alice Munro mm-hmm. um, did, he picked individual short stories out of three different collections. Um, I'm sure there would have been demand for everyone to say their not only their favorite collection, but their favorite Munro short story. Um, anyway, so someone do that. Some startup yeah, out there that's looking for something. Do, do, and do essays, that. And essay collections. Yeah, and essays please and essay collections. That. Yeah, absolutely right. All right, let's move on to uh, our most recent poll result yes. on Book Riot. We um, asked. Oh, go ahead. No, you, 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 you no, no, you do it. So, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, we asked readers to tell us who their favorite literary characters were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done all sorts of polls. We've done your favorite novels, the books you hate the most, the books you've been meaning to read but never seem to get around to. Uh, we've even done the books that you pretend to have read. Right. Uh, <laughs> And these are always anonymous, uh, so you can just you know bear your soul, and no one will know that it's you. Right. Uh, but we got some interesting results. We had 679 readers completed the survey, and they listed 681 unique characters. Uh, Wait, let so, me think about that for a second. Because each one got to list three. Three. Okay. All right. So there's a lot of overlap, really. There's a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap. 
Uh, yep. It seemed like there was more overlap here than mm-hmm. than there is in the pre in the surveys that we've well, done before. Well, and we knew. I mean, you and I knew. Yeah. Th- what the first two would be. Yeah, I we think, didn't. I didn't. I don't. Do we know the order? I thought the order would be reversed. I did too. Two. We couldn't agree on the first yep. two, and then you nailed the third one. Yeah, I did. Uh, so, <laughs> which now sounds terrible once you hear the third one is. <laughs> just, just, just give that a second Roll to it breathe. Back. Roll it back. Yeah. Uh, so the most loved literary character by Book Riot readers with 106 votes out of the 679 uh, responses was Elizabeth Bennett from yep. Pride and Prejudice. Yep. And the second with 80 votes, which I really thought was going to come in mm-hmm. first by a Me mile, was too. Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. There it is. The, 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 those are the two. And then uh, Hermione. Hermione, number three. With seventy six votes, and some other Harry Potter characters make it on this list. Yeah, Harry. This we're, we're Harry Potter heavy here, yeah, uh, and we're Lord of the Rings heavy, and yep. uh, but more Harry Potter than anything else on this list of top twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hermione comes in at three. Harry Potter came in at the sixth slot with thirty six votes. Yeah, uh, Severus Snape came in with twenty votes. A late charge in the series from Severus. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right, and and this is surprising to me. Dumbledore got fifteen votes. Uh, I was surprised that Dumbledore didn't come in. Yeah, higher. I guess I'm surprised that people. I mean, I'll, Severus is the surprise there, right? Mm-hmm. But he's an interesting character. Yeah, I guess so. He's so interesting, and uh, my surprise, I think, was number twenty, Lisbeth Salander from no Steve fourteen, Larson's. baby fourteen oh, Thursday thir- next oh, from yeah. Jasper Ford's Thursday next series. That's a shocker. I thought that was the big and shocker. Holden Caulfield came in at number twenty uh, with seventeen votes. No, which fifteen, is, fifteen. Oh, sorry, fifteen yeah, yeah. with seventeen votes, and um. Because there's a lot that, of haterade being spilled yeah, over it's Holden like the these cool days. Thing now, not to like catcher. You know what? I'm going, it's now cool to like Holden again. I just decided. You decided? Yep. I'm going That's the good. other way. Yeah. Yep. When I need to know what's cool, I always turn to you. Well, as you should, because I'll never <laughs> lead you astray. Uh, uh, now, interesting. The only Hobbit on this list, mm, Samwise Gamgee, of course, he came in he's at number the best thirteen. One. Frodo's insufferable. But he built Frodo, or he beat Frodo and Bilbo. Yep. That's right. That's a really good point. Gandalf was on this? No. Gandalf yeah, is number 18. 18. Jay Gatsby's at 19. Mm-hmm. We've got Sherlock Holmes at number five. Mr. Darcy at seven. Number seven. Scout uh, Finch at eight. Joe March oh, at nine. Four. Jane Eyre at four. Mm-hmm. I'm a little surprised by that, I have to say. I'm surprised by that, too, but I totally have bias here. I did yeah. not like Jane Eyre. You know what? I was a little surprised, and then no Shakespeare in the top 20. I mm. thought we might get Shakespeare. Maybe so diffuse. Yeah, like, maybe so. Way too many choices. Um, anyone and else you weren't su- you were surprised? I was just with? super happy. Yosarian? That, you wanted Yosarian. I probably. really did want Yosarian. Yeah. Uh, I would have. Uh, there were a couple votes for Guy Montag from Fahrenheit 451, mm. mm-hmm. um, but I didn't really expect that to crack the top twenty. Yeah. Uh, I'm happy that Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables made it to number ten. No Katniss here. Oh, that's true. There is no Katniss. No Katniss. Hmm. Um, do you want to say who you voted for? Did you? I vote? don't even remember who. Oh, I voted. <laughs> well, I, you can give it. I voted for Mrs. Dalloway, oh. Achilles, and Hamlet. I want classics. That is classic. Yeah. I, I if I had to guess who I voted for, because I usually put mine in first when I'm testing right, the right. forms, it would have. I think that I would have gone with Owen Meany mm-hmm. and um, Setha from Beloved. Yeah. Okay. I love her. Uh, and 
Oh, who was the third one? I really can't remember. I love Hester Prynne, but I don't uh-huh. think that I voted for Hester Prynne here. I didn't vote for Guy Montag. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody from the Sparrow. I'll have to now. I have to go back oh, into the good, full set yeah, yeah, yeah. of responses and see if there's somebody in there. I was um, thinking about because I like this these character based ones. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do most hated characters. Really, that's that doesn't seem that interesting mm-hmm. to me. But what about underrated characters? Like, or best secondary characters. Would that be interesting? Because you'd have to take Bennett, Atticus, uh, Jane Eyre. I guess you could still vote for Hermione. When when Atticus and Scout both showed up on this list, I thought, like, where's Boo Radley? Yeah. Because I'm thinking, like, Boo Radley. I'm thinking, like, like Dan Needham from Owen Meany. Like, these Mm. are great secondary characters. And he's so great. He's great, right? He's so great. Um, um, Which I just finished recently, by the way. And we could have, you know, the... uh, exchangeable female sidekicks from all the Robert Langdon. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't even know what their names are. That's the point. Yeah, I that's right. I guess, I guess Samwise is a main character. He'd have to yeah, go. He's primary. Holden would have to go. Meanie would have to go. Mm-hmm. Gatsby would have to go. So let, but Nick Carraway could. Yeah, well, I guess. Well, well, so he's the narrator, but the story yeah. is like not so much about him. I guess. I guess that then it would then be a debate about what a secondary. Character. <laughs> yeah, right. not what. The, but like people would just vote for whatever. I guess we'd find out what people consider yeah, secondary. Yeah, I, uh, I have the the next poll is in the lineup to run on the site yeah. on the fifteenth of October. So if you're listening to this and it's right around that time, you can hit. Should we tell them what it is? We I think tell we should. So you can yeah, start to think it's the most underrated books. Yeah, this is I I kind of forced us. This to do was this. a Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, Which is, it's a great it. one. I'm interested in that, yeah. too. But if you've got an idea for a character-based poll, um, I'd like to do another one of these character-based polls because they're, they're pretty interesting, I yeah, think. Yeah, I um, have a hard time with these. Something about the way that I read, I don't find myself that... Oh, I know who my third one was, Okay, though. It was Edie Bannister from Nick Harkaway's um, Angel well, that's Maker. A, that's a deep cut. <laughs> I mean, I know the but book, but... she's an awesome lady. Okay. I, I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> um, yeah, I was surprised that not to see Katniss, I have to, I have to admit. I guess maybe if you're voting for a young adult, you went with the HP guys. Mm-hmm. You just went that way all the way. Um, I yeah, guess nothing from... Uh, we got no Twilight no, here. No, I'm not surprised. No Billy Pilgrim. Mm. Nothing from... Uh, I guess what are the other big... Series, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There wasn't a Ford Prefect or Zaphod Yeah, and there's, there are no Lannisters on here. I can't oh, believe there's yeah. no George R. R. Oh, Martin. that's interesting. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Or what about, like, I was also thinking there might be some more classic kids' book, like, you know, Mary Poppins or. Uh, oh, Amelia Bedelia. Yeah, Christopher Robin or. Uh, what's the wimpy kid? Does that kid have a name? That those books. His are name so... is what is his name? Greg, I think. Greg. Those are hugely popular. So I, maybe maybe those maybe people weren't thinking kids' books when they're thinking mm-hmm. favorite character. Um, uh, nothing from Wrinkle in Time. Um, nothing uh, from the Dark Materials. A bunch of the Narnia characters showed up in the full set yeah. of responses. They just didn't crack that top twenty. Yeah, what's interesting about those is like the kids are kind of annoying in those books. <laughs> Uh, I, that's my opinion, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's sort of. I go with Aslan, there. I guess, or something else. Yeah, I think there was a vote for Aslan. Yeah, actually. probably. I probably snuck a second <laughs> in there. All right, you want to do the next story? I, I I didn't look at this story. I saw the headline, so you have to tell me about this. One. Oh, this is my hero of the week. Okay. Oh, good. Oh, excellent. Yeah. 
We don't have we don't have to do a well. We might do a bad job old dudes later yeah, in maybe. the show. We'll see, we'll but see. my hero of the week is a woman named uh, Anne Morgan, who uh, is a Cambridge University graduate in English Lit. Now she's a writer and an editor, and she spent the year of 2012 doing a project that she called a year of reading the world. And her goal was to read a book, a novel in translation. Uh, from every independent nation mm. in, the, in the world. And at that point, it was 196. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she set up a blog. It's a year of reading the world.com and uh, reading about four to five books a week. She, you know, she read, oh, it wasn't all just fiction, uh, but mostly fiction and some memoirs from you know, one book from each country. And now uh, she has a book coming out in 2015 called Reading the World Postcards from My Bookshelf. So, cool. Yeah, so a link to um, the interview. Some with of those her. must have been rough to wrangle. I would think so. Yeah, she was soliciting uh, the person who conducted this interview first came across her in 2011 when she was planning the project and mm-hmm. was soliciting recommendations from readers about books from the, from various countries. Yeah, so, like you get into the Uzbekistan's of the world, and I guess you just go to the library and look and people you, up like, and try to find something. Hope that some of them are available in English. Yeah. I wonder if ebooks make that easier. That some mm. of them you know, they don't have to be in print. Yeah, uh, maybe you can get a, get some of them that way. Yeah, that's really uh, cool. A very cool story, and uh, I love this this notion yeah. that that books really can. Uh, we we believe that that books you know can what? open. We up should your... get her. We should do an interview with her on the site. That sounds oh. like fun. It does sound like or, fun. Or we should figure out some way to get her on the site somehow. Maybe there's something we can. Uh, we can work on that. The, maybe maybe a post about the hardest. The hardest mm-hmm. countries to find a book for. That'd be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a cool interview. What's her one. name? We should say her name. Her Did name you is Anne Morgan. Anne Morgan. Yeah, um, you said it. Okay. And uh, the interview is at Publishing Perspectives. The link to that. Is she American? Is she in American? the show notes. Uh, Cambridge University graduate in uh-huh. English literature. So I think she's British. Yeah, she's a she's a. Uh, most of her bookshelves were filled with works by UK and US authors previously. Gotcha. And she okay. wanted to, you know, expand. Uh, her horizons. And so she went and did it. Uh, she done, cool. she done and, did expanded them. <laughs> and yeah, and I have to, uh, I have to thank her also. I had a little bit of a, like a r- rant on Twitter this morning about, uh, how over it I am of people like, doing I was a thing. wondering what you thought about the book part, <laughs> people doing a thing for a year just so they can write a book about the thing they did for a year. And we yeah. can probably blame a lot of that on eat, pray, love and the and uh, her Elizabeth Gilbert's influence combined with like AJ Jacobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yep. this I think is cool. There's no evidence that she set out to write a book about it. Um, she was keeping this blog. Who knows? Maybe she did want to write a book about it. Yeah. But like, this is a useful thing. Was uh, it? Was it a? Wasn't there a book about someone who read a book a day for a year? What was that one? Probably. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember what that one. I, I'll have to look that up. We'll, we'll catch that in show note next week. Okay. So, yeah, we'll watch for that. So, um, Anne there's Morgan, a link in the show notes. Hero it, of the Week. Ann Morgan. She is our reading Hero of the Week. Okay. Stats. Let's do stats, man. So, this is USA Today's uh, survey um, done by, uh, you know, print versus digital, basically, what is mm-hmm. digital readers? Because the mainstream, mainstream media cannot get enough of this story. Have you noticed this? They can't. They yeah, just cannot get enough of how many people like, have tablets and it's catnip to them. It is. It's like they've just discovered that people are reading yeah. books that aren't printed. So the stat that you pulled out, which I do think is the most interesting stat from this is USA Today uh, story, mm-hmm. would put the you can look at the rest of it. Average number of books read in the past twelve months on e-reader versus traditional book. Mm-hmm. Um, the av- uh, on e-readers, 
Looks like the average number. Well, it's broken out by age. So 18 to 39 year olds read 21 books mm -hmm. and 40 years or older read 16 books for e-readers. And then weirdly, the phrase is on traditional book. I just, I think they mean traditional <laughs> books. Uh, 18 to 39 year olds read 13 and 40 year olds or older read 11. Mm -hmm. So by about 50% more titles per reader on E than in print, according to this study. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other piece uh, that like the... Do you have any methodology red flags? I do. Yeah, I, I wondered. I knew you must have had a couple in your... Uh, a couple corner. of uh, methodology bullets in your gun to fire. <laughs> Thank goodness that the listeners are as nerdy as we yeah, are. Right. I'm really heartened every week when someone's like, yes, there was the methodology <laughs> on the show again. <laughs> so I came across this USA Today study because it was being linked to in a bunch of other bookish media. Yeah. Um, and uh, I use bookish as the adjective, but USA Today conducted this study in conjunction with a website called Bookish. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a collaborative effort of three publishers. And the thing that everyone seems excited about here, the big headline was people who have e-readers um, read more since they got their e-reader or their tablet. So mm -hmm. I went like digging through uh, this USA Today study and there are no numbers attached to ah, it. It's, come on. It's people who have e-readers say that they read more since they got their e-reader or their tablet. Because mm. those the numbers that you listed off, these make sense to me. That uh, a person in the 18 to 39-year-old group who has an e-reader or a tablet reads 21 books per year. Um, a person in the same age group who just reads in print reads 13 like the people who are most likely to go buy a device on which to yeah. read are the people who read more. So this is a correlation, not causation yeah, question. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, but like what kind of... What kind of a study is it if it's uh, just tell us things without numbers attached to them? You, and if you can't think of a number, here's a hat full of numbers. <laughs> Pull one out. out. Do you feel Does like Does that feel you, close? Do you feel like you read more? Like there, there are just so many confounding factors and issues yeah. with the way that it's presented. And of course, like it's smart on USA Today's part because that's a catchy line yeah, for other people right. to pick up and to tweet about and to put in their headlines. People who re have e-readers read more and and it solves or i guess it it doesn't solve but it soothes a little bit of the like ah death of publishing yeah. concerns um if people who have well let's let's just say for example read more, but mm. um let's say for a moment that this stat is wrong but that they do feel like they read more i think that's interesting yeah um I don't know why. I mean, but, I, mean that's I don't know what to state what they, about that's it. That's exactly. basically what they've reported. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, if you have, if you bought an e-reader to read on, you have a lot of sort of emotional incentive true, to, true. to say that you read more on it because now you, again, you have it's this the tool thing we crack intended. on people who crack on our poll saying, "Why would you lie anonymously?" Yeah, I don't. I don't think people are lying, but it's like. If you buy a thing because you think you're going to love the thing and you're going to use it, so a you whole just lot, misestimate. It's yeah. like, oh, I have this reader, and right. I, you need to I read a lot you. on it, so <laughs> right. it's probably you to, 22. Yeah, you need to tell mm. yourself that you use the thing all the time, so you can feel okay about the purchase. I don't think people would intentionally lie about this. What would be the point of right. lying about it? But it would be so great. Like, if I think that, that other people have done longitudinal studies where they've collected data like one year and then come back a couple of years later. And in all the years in between, the people keep track of how many right. books they're reading. So it would be great to know what change actually exists in reading habits. Um, yeah, that's interesting. 
Uh, let's see what else to say. There's a, anything else about that study? Uh, there's the other big question that they asked is, have you posted on Facebook about a book that you read, uh, tweeted about it, interesting. I or didn't commented see that. on a book website about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 39% of people in the 18 to 39 year old range, uh, that bookish polled, there was a hundred, there were, sorry, a thousand, there were a thousand people in this study total said that they had um, done a Facebook, a tweet or a comment on a book website about something that they had read. And only 19% of people who were 40 or older said they had that. That seems right to me. Yep. Um, I, I'm, their sample is probably skewed. Bookish is a website about books. And so people who find bookish and take their survey <laughs> are, are likely the kinds of right. people who also interact with books on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, there might be some, there might be some bias there and how, just how you go about finding people. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I like, I wish Twitter was on there. Yeah. They, they just wrapped it in together. It's a total. They broke it out that way. Yeah, that would, would be, be interesting, interesting to know. Um, because I feel like, and maybe it's just by virtue of who I follow on Twitter, and as I, soon as I say that, it totally is. <laughs> but so many more. But even the people, like the people that you and I both know on both, right? Yeah, yeah. You and I both tweet more about what we're reading than what we put on Facebook by far, well, right? Yeah, because um, Twitter, for me at least, is like a very curated place of mostly yeah. people that I talk to about books or that I talk to about other shared interests. And Facebook, it's like, well, some of my book friends are on Facebook, but also like my mom's best friend mm-hmm. and the people that we lived next door to when I was 12. And, uh, th- it's not the, it's not going to hit the audience right, as yeah, yeah, much. Yeah. Like my bookish conversation will fall a little more flat with that group of people than it will, you know, it just won't be as lively on Facebook for right. me. Maybe, uh, maybe I should dump my Facebook friends. Yeah, maybe it's time to, uh, time for a, for a calling. Oh, speaking and then I can of speaking, speaking, Speaking of something that needs culling, oh no! Uh, Boker did a study of how many self-published books got ISBN numbers in. Uh, wait, uh, did I get this wrong? I'm sorry. I think I did the title wrong. In 2012, last mm. year, so they counted more than 391,000 self-published titles in 2012. I just can't. Which is a 59 percent <laughs> increase over 2011. Uh, since 2007, that is a 422% increase. Out of all of the ISBNs counted in 2012, 40% were self-published. Oof. Um, it's a lot of writing, baby. Man. Uh, well, you know, here's something I need to say. I've never read a self-published book. Have you? Uh, yes. Yeah. You did. Okay. Before, like at the very beginning of my blogging days, an author um, reached out to me and sent me his novel and it was great. And, um, I didn't, I, I mean, I was, it was 2008 and I was a brand new blogger. I didn't know anything about right. publishing and I didn't right, right. realize until like years later that he was a self-published writer. Okay. And I'm kind of glad that it went that way, but I didn't have any yeah. you know, like preconceived notions about what a self-published writer was. And, mm-hmm. and the book was good. And I think I've... I'm sure maybe at some point I've read a few others. Um, they don't come across my doorstep. The no, way that, you no, know, the books they from don't. Like Random House do. And um, so, I mean, we're not the target audience for this, but boy, that's a lot. You know, part of me thinks this is really freaking cool. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I, part of me hates it terribly. 
This sounds like us. <laughs> <laughs> we have mixed feelings about yeah, things. Yeah, we do. So tell me about the cool part. Well, okay. So since I'm in my mode of raving about Clive Thompson's book, yeah. Smarter Than You right, Think, right, right, um, right. There, since the internet, people write more than they have really ever written before. Exactly. Um, and they write for an audience more than they have ever written before. And so it makes sense to me that if we've got all of these people who are writing more uh, and they're thinking about for whom they are writing, they're mm -hmm. not just writing for themselves or keeping a live journal uh, type deal, that they want to put their writing out there very right. intentionally for an audience. And so it's cool to me that we've been, we have this conversation about like, well, any, anybody could write a book or maybe everybody has a book in them that if you feel that you have a book in you, you can make that book. Happen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like uh, for real, my parents next door neighbors stopped me in the driveway the last time that I was at home in Kansas city and was telling me about how his dad had written a book now that he's retired. And, um, he just wanted to know how to publish it so that he could sell it to friends and family. Yeah. And so they could like have a party for his memoir and they could do and it. And it exists and it's and out it there exists. in the world and you it's can distribute it. Well, I mean, right. we, this we, guy didn't... we published a book though. I mean, yeah. so, you know, our start here, I guess how you'd call that self-publishing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. even though it's a, a company really that did it, but um, it was an individual. But yeah, I, I think that part is cool. Um, the part, let's talk about the part we don't like. You go first. Uh how to articulate this without sounding like a complete jerk. Um, too much. Too yeah. much. Yeah. It, so much. It's hard as a reader. Yeah, like, very hard. With 391,000 new books yeah. in a year, that's just a fire hose. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, though I was a little surprised that it was only 40% of the mm. ISBNs. That's true. So, like, more than that were non-self-published books. Uh, so that, it's it's not like it's an order of magnitude bigger than traditionally mm -hmm. published books. It's just next year, more than half of ISBNs will be self-published. Yeah. If, if, if growth is anything like yeah. um, it has been. Yeah, I love that anyone can publish a book and have the possibility of it bubbling up yeah. and, and getting but recognized. But so few and, of them, I guess that's the right, other that's thing. Right, that's sort of where I was going. Like how, at least in a lottery, someone wins the jackpot. Like how many of these people actually... I don't know. Well, uh, and so I, I guess it also depends on what each author is wanting out of self-publishing. Like if you're right. like my parents' neighbor and you just want to have a book to show yeah. for the work that you well, spent. Well, that's true. Telling your story or maybe writing they don't your memoir. Maybe it's or your, not a big your, deal. Right. If you're not trying to you know, sell a bunch of copies and become famous, then this could be... Like, this could be incredibly rewarding that you don't just have to like print it up at Kinko's and staple it together yourself, but that yeah. you can have an ISBN. You can technically, you, you can, can have distribute a distributor. it for free. Right. Through, right. you know, through Amazon content right. services. There are a ton of other options yeah. for, for writers. So that I think is pretty cool. Anybody that wants to do this can do it. But the idea um, that I think a lot of self-published writers go in with is that if they've if they, you know, hit the jackpot yes. in self-publishing, they're going to bubble up and then they'll get nabbed by a, a traditional publisher and they'll get a big book deal and then they'll have the power of a traditional publisher behind them. And that comes with a publicity machine and mm -hmm. a marketing person right. and other people spending money to get your book out to readers, which uh, is a hard thing to beat 
still. Still You have to have a lot of money or just be incredibly lucky to have a self-published book perform the way that books from traditional publishers do. But with 391,000 of them a year, it's going to be harder and harder. So difficult to bubble up in, in a, in that size pool. Yeah. But maybe if you think of it more like a hobby as most people, you know, that makes me feel a little bit better to think about it that way is like, it's like, it's like people who do woodworking. It's like, they might sell some of the flea market or friends and family. Like I like that idea that as a media rather than a business, it's much more open. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the technology is there to make it available to people who really, whoever wants it, frankly. Yeah. I think, I mean, that part is really cool. Yeah. There's this, but as a reader of... from us, who's like, we're not reading, you know, our uncle's memoirs yet. I mean, right. I'm sure at some point we will like, Because I would sort of be interested in some self-published titles that I might like, but I just how do you? I don't know where to go, and I I'm still biased against them, especially when there are so many traditionally published books that I want to read. um, That it's hard for me to find a way into reading the self-published stuff. So I still think I still feel like um, I don't remember one some some one of their book riot people said it. It might have been me, but I don't think it was. was like. I'm still kind of looking for like an Etsy of self-published stuff somehow Mm -hmm. where it's not just everyone's crap, but like, I don't know. It's like presented in a nice way. And I don't know, maybe, maybe there's something to be, I would be interested if like Amazon, for example, ever got in the business of like a top shelf self-published section Mm -hmm. where they like curated some and there was only like, you know, a few hundred titles. I don't know. Just some, somewhere some other way of going about it. Cause I need a, I need a curation part here to even dip my toe into yeah, this. As gross as it is when people in the industry talk about the value of gatekeepers and yeah. as much as I like to roll my eyes mm-hmm. at that as a, you know, as a person in the media, I find that gatekeeping notion really annoying, but as a reader, or well, I need a strainer, just, like gatekeeper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. 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 A strainer. Could I have a colander for my Right. Books, exactly. <laughs> um, it, that is one, service to readers that traditional publishers do provide. And I'm sure that they miss good books, that there I'm are sure great books do. that get turned down. I know that traditional publishers publish bad books. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say that you, know, you can always rely on a book to be good just because it was published by a traditional publisher, but they do uh, spend a lot of time trying to determine what's good, what readers are interested in, what yeah. will sell well. Right. And it's useful to have someone out like I can outsource that, that task. Well, you isn't know? it and, weird that it's easier to find good blogs to read than it is to find good self-published books to read, which, cause essentially they're just as easy to, to create, right? Well, you know, so maybe there should be like a technorati type situation for mm. self-published books because the way that, well, I don't know about how, how you find good blogs to read, but the way that I find good blogs to read is other people that I already yeah, follow start right. recommending these great things that they've found. And because like, because I trust your taste or because I trust, you know, one of our contributors taste who says that they have been reading a blog, then I go and check it out. So someone else has done that filtering, yeah. a, a source I, I that I trust there, has done that filtering. And uh, that yeah. doesn't, it just doesn't exist yet. For well, I think there are some nascent communities in around that, but it's mostly around genre self-published mm-hmm. stuff, which mm-hmm. you and I are not prime candidates for yeah. um, necessarily. But if you know of one yeah, that's particularly good, we'd love to hear about that. Uh, sponsor. 
We got a sponsor, uh, Lungs Full of Noise by Tessa Mellis, uh, sponsored the show last week, and it is back again. It's from the University of Iowa Press. Speaking of Alice Monroe and short stories earlier, this is a debut collection of short stories. There are 12 pieces in it, uh, and the book is concerned with issues of femininity. The writing uh, deals with things that are magical, raw, and grotesque. Uh, When I first read this description, the first thing that I thought of was Karen Russell, uh, whose writing is weird and a really delightful way. Uh, So in Lungs Full of Noise, uh, there are misfit women who are setting out to correct their misdirected lives. There are uh, like teenage girls who binge on grapes to dye their skin purple because a teen magazine tells them that that's how you can get a prom date. That's what the boys want. (laughs) (laughs) My purple skin brings all the boys to me. (laughs) This is what Book Riot After Dark feels like. That's right. That's what it is. Uh, There's a college student who has a roommate who's from Jupiter, and the roommate from Jupiter has inadvertently and like unintentionally seduced all of the boys in the dorm with her intergalactic lady parts. Uh, and so that college student is dealing with that. There's a story about um, competitive ice skaters who screw their uh, blades directly into their feet. Uh, so definitely sort of surreal, grotesque, strange, uh, but stories about women and issues in women's lives. And this might be a nice counterpoint to mm. to how much Alice Monroe is concerned with sort of ordinary yeah, people. Buttering your toast in Ontario. Right. Uh, and I say that with all the love that I can that I have. Yeah, those are quiet stories. Uh then then come and get your delightfully weird uh with lungs full of noise by Tessa Mellis. Uh we will have a link to the book in the show notes and thanks to to, uh, to her and to the University of Iowa Press for sponsoring this week. That's great. Uh, we've got one more story before we get to new books. Um, and this is kind of like a clash of two of the more <laughs> polarizing forces in books. Um, Andrew Wiley, this is kind of, this is insider baseball stuff, mm-hmm. just, just to be warned. Um, Andrew Wiley, probably the most powerful literary agent in the English speaking world, I would think Mm -hmm. this is not my realm. That's even insidery for me. Um, but it's one, if it's a literary agent that I know their name of, that means we know their name. That means something represents Philip Roth. Yeah. Um, and he, he shook up the, the literary agent world, I guess about 15 or 20 years ago when we started doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, became a household name in the publishing world for his, Hardball tactics. He's the Scott Boris of publishing. If yeah, there's if even follow. a parody Twitter account called yep. Evil Evil Wiley. Yeah, that's right. So this was an interview with the New Republic, and I guess they just called him up to see if he wanted to talk about Amazon. <laughs> Is that what you can tell? That that's that's what, what it they seems do. like. And he wanted to talk about Amazon. Boy, did he ever! Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's just so fantastic. Well, you don't hear. Here's an interesting thing. I, I think there's a couple things interesting. One, he's funny, and we'll get to the funny stuff about it in a second. <laughs> kind of unintentionally. Yeah, so. well, I don't know. I think he's, he's trying dramatic. to... He's dramatic. on a bit of a dramatic. show. He's putting on a bit of a show. But you don't hear people in publishing really lay it on Amazon, the lay the wood to Amazon like he Everybody's does here. Everybody's afraid to. Yeah, you do hear an author now and again, and you hear independent bookstores sellers do it because um, they don't have... Uh, our friends at Melville House will do it. They're the ones that sort of... Uh, <laughs> keep the drum beat, uh, beating. That's true. Um, but for, for Andrew Wiley, who is like, you know, a Titanic figure in the business to come out and he hates these guys. He really he hates them. He so hates them. Uh, let, okay. I'll, I'll go first. And <laughs> but he I'll didn't pick my, always. He didn't always at the beginning. 
Let's see. Uh, what was your reaction when Amazon arrived on the scene? And he said, it seemed to me a beautiful response to the chains. We had an equal an equal playing field for Humboldt's gift and the latest number one best-selling Humboldt's gift, a novel by Saul Bell. Mm-hmm. Wiley, one of his strategies is to sign works, quality work that may not be bestsellers, but will sell for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went, you know, he, he gets uh, Philip Roth and Martin mm-hmm. Amos and, uh, yeah. A lot of the big names that they, they're not going to be like the help, but they're going to sell over years and decades. Yeah. It's and much more of an investment on this. If you really like want to nerd out about oh, this stuff yeah. and get the full detail, uh, Merchants about, of Culture. Yep, the Merchants of Culture is. I I don't have the authors in front of I, me. I we'll put those in the show either. notes. But that's a great book about the history of publishing in yep. America and the UK. And you can like you will know more, way more about Andrew. Wiley. And there's a whole section on Wiley. That I mean, mm-hmm. that tells you how uh, influential he was. So he likes the idea of Amazon, like because there's sort of infinite shelf space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can put all the bellow next to whatever's new. But at some point, the worm turned. <laughs> uh, and I, let's see, where did he really do, where did he really, uh, my favorite, your yeah, favorite yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, you do, you do that one. I think. Yeah. I mean, he just, he, he just bashes yes. for a while, <laughs> but, and I think, you know, this is the piece of this interview that has been quoted the most online, but the interviewer asks, what would it take yes. to, get, to get you to sell a book to Amazon? And this is like Amazon publishing for, yeah. so basically what would it take for Andrew Wiley to sell one of his clients' books to Amazon to publish. And he says, if one of my children were kidnapped and they were threatening to throw a child off a bridge and I believed them, I might. (laughs) (laughs) Or here we go. Uh, This is a good one, too. It's like, do you feel as hostile toward Amazon as you used to? That's the interviewer's question. Uh He says, uh... I think that Napoleon was a terrific guy before he started crossing national borders. <laughs> Over the course of time, his temperament changed and his behavior was insensitive to the nations he occupied. Through greed, which it sees differently as technological development and efficiency for the customer and low price, all that Amazon has walked into the position of thinking that can thrive without the assistance of anyone else. And that is megalomania. <laughs> Boom. Mm, pot kettle, maybe? Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's he has interesting. a like, high up in the interview, like early on, he sort of has a tinfoil hat moment, as I like to call them, uh, where. Or, or right after that, when did your feelings change piece? He's talking about Jeff Bezos, and he says mm-hmm. that he believes uh, that Amazon has its print publishing business so that their behavior as a distributor of digital content can be misperceived by the Department of Justice and the publishing industry in a way that is convenient for Amazon's bottom line. And so he's referring there to ebook pricing uh, and to what Amazon does to get itself, you know, in a in a competitive position with pricing for customers. But that's right. But Wiley seems to think that there's a, a bit of nefarious conspiracy activity happening there. And, uh, you know, this is, it's interesting, like you said, to see someone in publishing just come out swinging yes. against Amazon, because in general, publishers are terrified to do it yeah. because they're like the buy buttons for their books will magically yeah. disappear That's when, right. they, when they and- speak out. But Wiley just suggests Okay, so what? Yank all of your content yeah. from Amazon. You're, you won't do it because you're afraid you'll lose 30% of your sales. That's right. And you might because that's about the percentage of book sales that Amazon accounts for. But you'll have bigger margins on the other 70% of your sales. Well, I 
I've thought about this. Um, again, as I say over and over again, I'm not as much of a, a, a hater of the big green A as is out there, but I am wary of them mm-hmm. as I'm wary of all giant companies that um, become dominant or near dominant or threatened to become dominant in their market. And now that Random, and, Random House and Penguin have merged to become the world's large, largest publisher, couldn't they, couldn't they take some of the wind out of Amazon's sails by just saying, you know what, check you later, Bezos. We're not selling books through Amazon anymore. You know, I think they could. They'd really have to work their nerve up and, yeah. conv- and convince themselves. And maybe, they, maybe it really does just come down to numbers and maybe they can't trust the numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Amazon looms so large in the imaginations of Well, of I guess the question people. would be like if, if they pulled all their books – do they think that people wouldn't go elsewhere to buy them? They just go buy from whatever is on Amazon. I guess people with Kindles might. Yeah. Um, but we, as we've done with the show, people who only read on Kindles is only you know eleven percent mm-hmm. of the market or something. Right. I think if you're going to do it, you better do it now. Right. And I think the fear there is is not just about sales, but is about discovery. That if they were yeah. to yank, if if say Random House and Penguin were to pull all of their titles off of Amazon, then all the people who just use Amazon to figure out what yeah. books they want to read next, whether they order from Amazon or not, mm-hmm. um, wouldn't be able to find their books. Well, you know what you'd know have if... to do? it. You'd have to do it around the release of some title everyone wants. Mm-hmm. And then that would be a way for everyone to find out that Amazon no longer has everything. Harry Potter 8. Yeah, exactly, which I guess would be scholastic. But anyway, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it yeah. would be, something like that. And like just everyone's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, it, it seems to me one of those things that is terrifying until somebody actually does it and yeah. proves that they can survive the thing and it's not as yeah. terrifying as well, you think, thought. Yeah, I think for a publisher, I think if you were going to do it, you'd want to really do it not just to to get more of your margins buying elsewhere. I think you'd want to do it to harm Amazon. Well, and publishers have been trying to work around Amazon for a while. They've been trying to build their own competitors. And yeah. Bookish, the site that we mentioned mm-hmm. um, earlier in the show that conducted helped conduct the survey, it was a collaboration of three of the big six publishers, and it is essentially built to function as an online yeah. bookstore. They have some content. They have, re- but they have a recommendation engine. They have links to buy books, eBooks, and print books. And they're the, the three publishers combined poured more than twenty million dollars into yeah. developing and it. So continue there's, to spend money. On it. Yeah, there's a real desire there in publishing to find but it's not like to you find a way around uh, yeah. Amazon, but like you're not gonna you're not gonna build a new thing and lure people away from Amazon just by saying you built the new thing. Right, but I'm I guess what I'm saying is like there are plenty of other places to buy ebooks, honestly. I mean you can and, buy them through Apple. You can buy mm-hmm. through Apple, you can buy through Kobo, you can mm-hmm. start Barnes and Noble, you can buy them through Google Play. Um it's not like and it's not like the quality is different. It's, right. it's a freaking ebook. It's the same was, thing. Maybe this fear was founded when, like, in the time when the Kindle was the only e-reading yeah. device yeah. or was really the predominant one. But but now, I mean, if our readers are any indication, most people who e-read read. Uh, in multiple apps on a tablet type right. device. Yeah. Um, and they could easily just switch over to the iBooks app or their Nook app or get mm-hmm. it in Kobo or get it from OverDrive and read it uh, from their library. Yeah. You have you have lots of non-Amazon choices. And if publishers really want, I, I would I would love to see a publisher just like work up their courage and do this. I would just buy whatever what book happen. it is. I would just for go sure. buy it. I would just go buy it somewhere else for sure just to, to work up nerve to do it. Um, 
because I don't like the other part of the discussion. I have a long simmering post um, about this, so maybe I'll flush it out at some point. It's like, you know, we're one of the messages we get from sort of the virtuous bookish internet is to to buy from anywhere but Amazon, basically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's weird to think that the end consumer is supposed to make the sort of moral choice yeah. over the publisher. Like if the publisher is selling it through some avenue, I think the consumer has to believe that they think that it's reasonable as part of the ecosystem to sell it through that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, how disingenuous is that? Like, I don't know. I don't like that idea. It's like somehow I'm supposed to know better than the publishing industry what's good for it. That seems stupid. It does seem stupid because it is stupid. Yeah, because it is stupid. <laughs> uh, and and in general, it's bad form to to blame an industry's failure on its consumers or to blame the yeah. way that an in, the ways that an industry is broken on its consumers. But publishing and the the booktornet community seem to be really good at that at at you know blaming the death of independent bookstores on all those people who buy their books from Amazon. Which you know if if you love Amazon and you want to buy your books there, that's fine. If you want independent bookstores to stay alive, then you will put your money where your mouth is that way. Yeah. Um, but you're right. If, if publishers really do have a problem, yeah, if they Amazon, think it's dangerous and, for their business, don't sell it to them anymore. Don't you, do it. One need not attend very many publishing cocktail parties to hear all sorts of opinions about Amazon, That's most right. of which are not flattering. Well, I was going to so say, we is, probably hear more than the average listener of this show even of sort of uh, off the record talk. But there is, uh, I think there is a level of disingenuousness there and of uh, working, publishers working with Amazon and making their books available there because simply because they're afraid of what Amazon will do to them if they don't. Yeah, and you know the way around that is to pull it all. Yeah. Just throw all your weight behind the other platforms and you can't, then you can't get, when uh, if you're a random house, you can't get, let's say, uh, maybe, you know, maybe they should have done around Dr. Sleep. Hmm. Doc, Dr. Stephen Sleep's King's coming out book. and random, random penguin now just says, you know what? That's it, suckas. Uh, you got to go somewhere else, anywhere else, anywhere but here or yep. anywhere but there, I guess it would be. Anyway, I thought it was interesting that he actually said that because I've thought it and I don't know, there might be some sort of, there might be some sort of regulation. I don't know what the sort of commercial law is about not supplying certain um, distributors with certain titles. There could be some legal restriction or fair trade restriction. I don't know enough about it. I don't think there is, but um, it's a certain experiment that'd be worth trying. If Amazon's mm-hmm. going to pull your buy buttons, don't even let them have buy buttons to pull is sort of yeah. my I, Yeah, I, my I would be interested it. in whether you could do, whether publishers could do it on a title by title basis or yeah. whether they would just have to refuse to work with Amazon wholesale. You know, because King would do it. Yeah. I bet if they asked him, they'd say, you know what? Because uh, he did that with Joyland. Or like just, just Richard print. Russo, which is yeah. not as big as King, but he's outspoken about not liking Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, Sherman Alexi, he mm-hmm. would do it. I'm not sure that he moves enough units, but it would certainly make a statement. Uh, okay, boy, we got on a little Let's jag talk there. about new books, new books now that we've. Uh, <laughs> you can buy them at Amazon. You can buy all them the many Amazon. ways you can acquire yeah, your books. Right. <laughs> Good stuff this week, as always. Uh, the first book is Longborn by Joe Baker, L O N G B O U R N. It is one of many books that is, you know, the fictional takeoff uh, inspired by Pride and Prejudice. But this one's a little bit different. It's about the downstairs life of the mm-hmm. servants, uh, and. It is no less dramatic than what's happening upstairs uh, with, you know, 
love and drama and whatever it is that happens in books that are based on Pride and Prejudice, because <laughs> I didn't like Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, <laughs> I don't read right. any of these, but uh, the Pride and Prejudice community and uh, many of our readers have been very excited about Longbourn for a long time. A lot of our contributors have read it and loved it and have said great things about it. And it's, I think it's super smart to publish this book in a Downton Abbey dry spell. Mm. Uh, if you're into Downton Abbey, it, uh, my spidey senses tell me that you would enjoy Joy Longborn by Joe Baker. I, I, might, might, read, even, I might read this. This is so unlike to, me to read stuff like this. You might not even like need to know anything about Pride and Prejudice. I don't Prejudice. think you do necessarily. Um, but I don't know. I usually don't go on for this like Jane Austen theme park stuff. Um, <laughs> but this one has gotten some very good notices. And I kind of like it's kind of that Gosford Park, if you remember yeah, that movie. It, it really Upstairs, has, downstairs like, sort of thing. There's a lot of this kind of stuff, but very little of it gets the level of recognition and conversation that Longbourn's getting. Yeah, and it, Austin was attuned to many um, things, but The Servants was not one of them. I right. mean, they're they're sort of just hovering around. But I've read all of the Austin, so there could be a character or something that burbles up um, from the, serv- the serving class, but I don't think so. Um, so that that's something that'd be interesting to see. Uh, so that's Longborn by Joe Baker. And Longborn, of course, being the name of the uh, Bennett's estate in um, Pride and Prejudice. Yes, indeed. And the, the next mention is actually for a bunch of books that are all out in paperback this week, because that's the way these books get published. Mm. And it's the Best American uh, series. Yes, that time of year. Oh, man. I love Best American Week. Uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt publishes these, and there's there's one for everything. There's a volume for everything. There's the Best American Short Stories, the Best American Essays. This year, that is edited by Cheryl Strayed. Uh, you just know it's going to be good. Uh, the Best American Non-Required Reading is my favorite each year, and it is edited by Dave Eggers and the students from the 826 National Organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it has no unifying theme, except it's stuff that they read that they thought was awesome and interesting. Uh, It's a good collection, too. Yeah, it's great. There's, you know, like comics and essays and like the best Craigslist ad that they read. (laughs) Um, It has a little bit of everything, and it's just a great celebration of writing. There's also the best American travel writing, the best American sports writing. Uh, I know that I am missing some. Yeah, there's a bunch. uh, Those are out. Each book in the series has a similar cover design, and if you're walking into a bookstore, you'll probably see a display of all of them together. But I know for many readers, this is a, a week that you look forward to every year of the new Best American books coming out. And that's this week. Yep. I uh, I uh, always read the Best American Short Stories one, which apparently Canadians are eligible for, huh. somewhat counterintuitively. I know that only because I've read, um, I've missed the last few years because of, because of Offspring. But um, uh, Salman Rushdie edited the volume a few years ago and he said on Twitter today that for his year he wanted to pick three Alice Monroe short stories <laughs> but they're only supposed to pick one per author so yeah. there's a little uh, callback there was it, you got any more books or were those are the two because I got uh, one no, more of you that's it that those are it for me I'm still working my way through last year's best American short yeah. stories because every year I like I get a stack of best American books and it takes me much longer than I think it will. Yeah, the only other book I was going to mention because it's getting talked about is The Circle by Dave Eggers came out uh, this week on Tuesday. Um, and it's one, you know, it's McSweeney's. And so they do these things where like 
they're kind of like paratroopers. Like six weeks before the book comes out, they tell you it's coming out, as opposed yeah, to we know through we know through the, the 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 bigger publishers six eight you know sometimes longer ahead of time. Um, and this is Eggers. He's just wrote. He's writing a lot these days. Um, yeah. Maybe it's because he's staying off the internet. Uh, because <laughs> this one is a a satire, I guess. Um, about a woman who works at an organization, organization at a company that's like Facebook. That's like Facebook. And it's a satire, kind of a grim view of, uh, it's a novel, a grim view of what goes on there. Um, it's getting a lot of talk because we're all scared of the internet, apparently. Um, and Dave Eggers is no different, it seems. Um, but I think he's a super interesting guy. Yeah. Um, he's written, he's not afraid to try something. You know, he does, he's done those... Um, nonfiction novels, I guess, mm-hmm. is the only way to, to say they're true stories of of people, but he, he tells them in novelistic form. Um, There's and, also some good internet drama. Yeah, there is. There the is. The circle there is. Uh, that a woman who was an early employee at Facebook um, wrote a book. I think that she self-published about that Is experience. that what it was? I could I, be wrong. There's, I could be wrong about the I self-publishing piece, but she wrote, yeah. she wrote a book about her experience being an early Facebook employee, and she sees many similarities between her book and The Circle. So she sort of came out swinging at Dave Eggers online last week, accusing him of plagiarizing uh, did her book. Did you look at those things? Did you look at those stealing... as excerpts, the comparative excerpts? I didn't see the comparative I excerpts. I did. It was did on, there was some on Jezebel and somewhere else. It looks like a load of horse, whatever. Well, so then it came out that, of course, Eggers said he had never heard of her well, or her book. That's what, and then that's she what plagiarists admitted, always do. I'm right, not saying right, he right, did, right, right. but like... He said what he's supposed to say, but yeah. then she admitted that she actually didn't read The Circle. Oh, come on. <laughs> really? Really. Oh, she she can go sit down. <laughs> In the corner. I mean... There, <laughs> down there, the hall I mean, for losers. There Jeff. are down the hall for... There are some sort of similarities, like it's about a woman who works at a big media company... And I think Eggers did some research about what it was like to work at Facebook, and she worked at Facebook, so there's going to be some natural sort of overlap mm-hmm. because he's representing f- fictionally and with the names changed of the company everything, some of the things that go on there. Um, but I looked at the excerpts that they pulled out as being especially indicting, and I was just like scratching my head. I was yeah, like, it's not there. I don't know what that's about. So uh, anyway, The Circle, Dave Eggers, um, that's out this, this week as well. And that's our show, I guess. Yeah. Is that it? I think that's it, man. That's it. We got, it's, we're, some of the, I, well, let me just tease this, because did you see the thing about Stephen King's review of The Goldfinch? No. It's the cover review in the New York Times book review this week. Oh. And it is a big wet one right on the face. <laughs> it already got one big New York Times. It, I mean, he says something like, that's the kind of book that only comes out once a decade or something like well, that. Well, it is pretty good. So the Goldfinch, if you, if you don't know, it is uh, the new novel by Donna Tart that comes out October 22nd. It's her first book in more than a decade. And I, that's, they're reviewing it two weeks early. Well, and um, Michiko Kakutani's review yeah. at the New York Times came out last week. Which and so, was like, great, which was another it, great it, review. It was also great. It is, it is a great book. It's not perfect, but uh, yeah. as my friend Stephanie Anderson says, even its flaws are really interesting. Yeah, it's 771 pages, too. It's super well-paced. If you read The Secret History, um, I think that you will enjoy what happens in The Goldfinch. But So we're going we're gonna to talk about Stephen yeah, King. Yeah, and then, then the, the Lahiri comes out soon. 
The Lowland comes out soon. Oh, that's out. Oh, that's out. Yeah, that's out. Okay, I'm confused. <laughs> so we're we're in the white hot center, is what I was trying to say. We are in the white the hot fall, center of the, the fall, fall publishing season. Yeah, we're gonna start thinking about our year end. What we should do for a year end show or a couple year end shows. Yeah, let us know, let us know. readers, if or listeners, if you, you have. Know, ideas. I got a couple of ideas, but I'll run them past you later. So you can find us as always on Twitter at Book Riot. I'm at Reading Ape. You are at Rebecca Shinsky. S C H I N S teespring.com slash book riot for the t-shirt available through Monday night, midnight. October 14th. Uh, October 14th. Yeah, that's easier for people listening later. Uh, what else we got? Is that it? Uh, you can find the show notes online at bookriot.com slash podcast. And in the show notes, we have a link to a short survey. It'll take you about two minutes, seven questions that help us identify uh, the best and most relevant sponsors for the show so we can keep talking to you about stuff like Savuda Universe and Lungs Full of Noise and other books and bookish products oh, that you That love. was well done, Shinsuke. I like that. Uh, I've been, you, I'm, I'm working on yeah, it. I'm working on it. We're going to get this thing down here eventually. You can email <laughs> us at podcast at bookriot.com if you've got some feedback for us. We ask you questions all the time. you got an idea for uh, uh, a segment we should do, do something else. That's always very helpful. If you'd also like to be very helpful, you could go review us on iTunes. Uh, give us as many stars as you feel comfortable uh, giving us. Uh, and if you'd like to write a prose review, there's some chance to do for it, too. We look at those. Those make us feel especially good um, when we see new ones there. It helps people find the show. It feeds the algorithmic beast of, of Apple's uh, machine and can stuff can burble up and new people can find us. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Have next a good week. one. Next week. Bye.